Tonight we'll be starting chapter 7 of the Confession of Faith. We'll be in section 1. This is of God's covenant with man. Uh, This will certainly take us through March. Uh, We might take it week by week, in which case it would spill past March. Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, We'll kind of figure it out as we we go. Covenant is is a very important concept in the Bible because how you understand it will impact how you understand uh, the Bible as a whole. The Bible at its most foundational level is a covenant book. Uh, We've been doing in Sunday school a biblical theological overview over the entirety of the Bible, and we've been covering various sections. What's what's one section that we've covered already, or what section of the Bible are we in presently in Sunday school? What section of the book? Not the book. The the prophets. All right, what's another section of the Bible that we've covered so far? The Pentateuch, historical books. There's also wisdom literature, and then in a couple of weeks we'll get into the Greek Bible, where you have the Gospels. You also have historical books like Acts, you have the Epistles, you have all these different smaller sections, but at a really, really, really basic level, the Bible is divided into two parts, and what are they? The Old and New Testament. And that word testament uh, sticks with us from the, the Latin Vulgate. Uh, which was the Latin translation of the Bible done in the late 300s by a guy named Jerome. And it was the Bible until the mid-1500s. So about 1,200 years, that was the Bible. If you, if you think uh, the, the King James has had a strong impact on the English Bible, and it has, that was only the dominant translation for about 300 years. The Vulgate, three times as long. And that word testament is the Latin translation of what we would normally render covenant. So you could think of your Bible as divided Old Covenant and New Covenant, though that's a little bit of an oversimplification, uh, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks with this study. But the the important thing is to know that the Bible at its most fundamental level is a covenant book. And this is not a unique view of Presbyterians. This is a view uh, across denominations, across different Uh, ways of thinking. The great Baptist minister Charles Spurgeon said, the doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who understands well the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. I am persuaded that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of scripture are based on fundamental errors with regard to the covenants of law and grace. And so we're going to really take our time with this concept because it impacts the way you view the rest of the Bible. It impacts the way you understand everything. And to that, one of my seminary professors, who may or may not have happened to grow up at this church, would add, covenant theology is the gospel set in the context of God's eternal plan of communion with his people and its historical outworkings in the covenants of works and grace. It explains, that is the concept of covenant, explains the meaning of the death of Christ in light of the fullness of the biblical teaching. It undergirds our understanding of the nature and use of the sacraments and provides the fullest possible 
explanation of the grounds of our assurance. In other words, covenant theology is the Bible's way of explaining these four things. The atonement, meaning the death of Christ. Assurance, the basis on which of our confidence that we have communion with God. The sacraments, the signs and seals of his promises. And lastly, the continuity of redemptive history. Covenant theology is the Bible's way of undergirding all of those things, of holding them up. Uh, one other theologian named Michael Horton uses the illustration that if you think of the Bible and all of its doctrines as a building, the idea of covenant is the framework that holds that building up. You don't always see it right on the surface, but everything that is said is presupposing that it's there. Does that make sense? That's why we're going to spend uh, a lot of time and perhaps the rest of our... I'm tempted to spend the rest of our semester just on this chapter. It's not because I want to beat up people who don't agree with us on the covenant. It's because it is that important. Um, remember when we started uh, chapter 6 a few weeks ago on the fall of man and of sin and the punishment thereof... I said we're going to now be going through uh, different aspects of salvation. And we began two weeks ago with what we called the bad news, the message of condemnation that man was made for God's glory and chose not to glorify God, but rather fell from that state. And before we can get to the good news of Jesus Christ, which is chapter 8 of the Confession, the Westminster Divines thought, and I think rightly, that we need to understand the concept of covenant. And so I'll go ahead and read for us chapter 7, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It reads, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by the way of covenant. And so there's four things that we're going to consider from this paragraph tonight. And really, let's simplify that and we'll say three things, okay? Because the middle two can be lumped together pretty easily. The first is the basic distinction between the creator and the creature. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. The creator-creator distinction. And then uh, the, the, cre the, the duties of the creature to the creator and the creator to his creatures. So the first part is the distinction between the two. The second part is going to be the duties that are owed to one another. And then the final part is going to be the creator's desire. That is uh, what, the, what the confession ends on. Uh, so that's where we're going to go. So first of all, the creator-creator distinction. Uh, Chad Van Dixhorn reminds us, the confession has in view here not ethical differences, but differences in our very beings. It's not discussing the fallenness of man versus the holiness of God, but rather man's smallness and God's greatness. Um, to, to see this great distance, we could go to several places in Scripture, but we're going to start uh, with the prophet Isaiah. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Isaiah 40. And while you turn there, I'm going to go ahead and, and just 
kind of maybe take Dr. Van Dixhorn's words and, and, and put them maybe a slightly different way. Um, we tend to think of God uh, in terms of what we are not. So we are finite, meaning limited, and God is infinite. And there's nothing sinful about us being finite. That's just who we are. That's how he made us. And uh, God is infinite, meaning he is greater than us. He is beyond us. And that's really the meat of what we're getting at here. His greatness as compared to our smallness. So with Isaiah chapter 40, if you're there, this chapter really serves one uh, very broad purpose. And that is to fix our attention on God. And by the way, this is a total side note from our main topic tonight. The idea of that is why I'm such a big proponent and have us sing uh, hymns in here on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. Because in doing that, we're, we're getting um, our own minds saturated with the things of God. We're internalizing truths about who God is so that we can then draw on them later in life when we need them. Um, it's often been said and recounted to me that, that usually the last thing a Christian remembers when they're, when they're old and well advanced in years is the hymns that they have been singing since they were a child. These are ways to internalize great Christian truths in moments of distress. And that's what Isaiah is doing in Isaiah chapter 40. Um, you may remember that in chapter 39 of Isaiah, we were told, and we talked about this on Sunday morning, of the coming Babylonian invasion. And that was going to come hundreds of, not hundreds, about a hundred years down the line. And in the face of that impending threat, the prophet directs us now, directs our eyes to God, because when we're in moments of distress, we need to reflect on what is true about our God. So that's really what the first five verses of this chapter offers. Would somebody please uh, read Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5? Mr. Johnson. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's a really precious thing to consider about God, that well before the invading army comes, he wants his people, the faithful ones, to know one simple thing. That despite the fact that, that the sins of the covenant community have real and temporal ramifications, that is the sins of those that we are connected to will affect us, and sometimes negatively, that nonetheless God is still with them and offers them these words of assurance of his grace and love in spite of what is coming. Then, verses 6 to 8 assure us of the certainty of God's word. You'll often hear both myself and Dr. Phillips quote this after we read the Bible. Uh, Isaiah 46 to 8 says, A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath 
of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. And then this is the part we quote, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That is where we go for our assurance, to the covenant book, to the book of God's covenant promises. And then verses 9 to 10 extol God's greatness. Would somebody read those for us real quick? Verses 9 to 10 of Isaiah 40. Ms. Berger. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. And behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Go ahead and do 11 as well. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently and shall gently lead those that are with young. Thank you, uh, Ms. Berenger. And so we see uh, an, an exaltation of God's greatness uh, and, and a reveal of his, of his decree to glorify himself and the care of his people. And then verses 12 to 14, would somebody else read those? Ms. Scoggins? Who, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, who marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Thank you very much, Reese. Um, so, so these verses are, are extolling and highlighting God's works, both of creation, of making things, and of God, of, of His providence, of His sovereignly ruling over them. So, we've got uh, God's word, God's nature, God's decree, God's creation, God's providence. Or is the order of these things sounding familiar at all? Perhaps chapters one through five of the Confession, just showing you that there's a there's a biblical ordering and arrangement. To these things, and now we can get into really the 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 heart of uh, this first paragraph of chapter seven of God's covenant. Uh, your confession actually will footnote Isaiah forty verses thirteen to seventeen, and so we'll camp out there and, and talk about those verses for a little bit. I'll read them. Who has met? Well, Reese already read part of this, but I'll read it again. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man has shown him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust, like Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This passage uh, very plainly lays out that um, God is on one level and everything else is on a completely different level. That's the creator-creature distinction. That's the creator-distinction, the creator-creature divide, rather, But verses uh, 18 to 19 will help to not only tell us that fact, but explain part of why that is the case. To whom will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver, 
chains. And so these verses show us that we have a fundamentally, at the base level, different relationship to God than we do anything else. Because God is fundamentally different than everything else. (coughs) So many things, in fact, most things in our lives are the work of either our hands directly or somebody else's, right? Uh, you know, this, this podium was made by somebody else. This Bible was printed and bound by somebody else. I wrote these notes. These are man-made things that we can use and that we can control and manipulate uh, as we see fit. We can, we can guide them. We, we have some sort of authority over them. God is not like that. God is fundamentally different than everything else. All of these things are tools and instruments that we can use, and yet God is the one who has made us. It's a fundamentally different relationship. And that point holds true even apart from sin, just by virtue of the fact of who God is and who we are. We are fundamentally different types of beings. Uh, We use uh, a lot of analogies to describe God to help us understand certain facets of who he is and what he's like. And there's an appropriateness to that. Uh, The Bible uses analogies like that. We quoted one uh, last Sunday from Isaiah 66, 13, that that God says that he will care for his young like a mother does for her nursing child. And so there's an illustration, there's an analogy there. Uh, the, The warning, though, that I would have for us is, Sometimes because we pile up analogy after analogy after analogy for what God is like, we can forget that those analogies just serve a little sliver of what God is like. He's actually much bigger than any of them. Right? So here's another example. Uh, Who is your shepherd? Jesus. Jesus, right? How do you know that? Okay, good answer. Where? Maybe a famous psalm. 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? Or in this passage in Isaiah, 40.11 speaks of he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Alright? What other relationship do you have in your life that's like that? Yeah. I am in some sense a shepherd over you, as is Dr. Phillips as are your elders, right? 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 4 would, would, ex- would explain it that way. Peter says, I exhort you as a fellow elder, shepherd well the flock that's been entrusted to you. So in my role as pastor, or Dr. Phillips, or your ruling elders, you're to get some sort of idea for how God cares for you. And, and, and in the, the care that your parents provide for you, you get some sort of idea of how God cares for you, That's just capturing a small little sliver. We always want to remember that he is more than that because your moms and your dads, no matter how godly they are, are fundamentally the same type of being as you. And God is altogether different. God thinks on a different plane. Um, We don't have to flip there, but Isaiah uh, chapter 55, 8 and 9 is the famous passage where he says, Uh, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. They're higher. Um, And and the way I would illustrate that is, you know, it's almost certainly true that just due to the fact that that 
I'm older than y'all and your parents are older than y'all and we've had more life experience and we've seen more things happen that we are going to think about things probably at a little bit deeper level when it comes to how to navigate situations. We're going to anticipate more things probably than you would and that's not any fault on your part. It's just experience. But fundamentally, our process is going to be much more similar than it is different. God is thinking in a completely different way. It's, it's, it's as if he's playing um, a different game. He has higher priorities, bigger priorities, bigger ideas than we do. Uh, we used the idea a few weeks ago to try and explain this of an Impressionist painting. Um, can somebody please tell me what an Impressionist painting is? Do you know, Daniel? Not sure? Sorry, it's, I, I, I thought you might. Who might. Who does know what an Impressionist painting is? I know Lauren would, but she's not here. Jack? Isn't it a painting that's trying to bring out, like, the feeling, kind of? Sort of. Yes, it is trying to do that. I'm thinking of a different aspect of it, though. Didn't my May do that? Do yes, he did. Francis? Isn't it like a bunch of shapes and colors that looks like something... You're to get so you're, you're close. An Impressionist painting is literally a series of dots that arrange into a picture. If you step back really far, you see the full picture. Now the analogy is this. We are the dots. And so by nature, my perspective is limited. I can only see the dots that are connected to me. And even then, I can only see part of them, right? God sees the full picture. It's not just thinking, it's not just that he's wiser than us, though he is. But he sees things differently. He is higher than us. And we must never forget that there's that fundamental distinction. And this also comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 22 to 23, speaks of this different perspective that he has. It is he, that is God, who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch, who stretches out the heavens and the curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. He's saying, I'm the only one that's outside the picture. I'm the only one that's outside creation and has the full data to work with. He is fundamentally not like us. And so that brings us to our second thing, the, the duties that we owe to him and likewise the duties that he owes to us. Now this is pretty simple and less abstract than that last section. Before I move into it though, does anyone have questions? Does that make sense? Clear as mud? Um, bottom line is he's on a different plane than we are. And we need to remember that at all times. The duties... Uh, so that's our divide, uh, and that's our relationship at its core. He, he is our creator, and we are his creatures. And so the obligations are pretty simple. We owe him everything. We owe him everything. There's a reason that your parents trained you to give thanks to the Lord before you eat, because the food that you have is a gift from him. Now, yeah, on the one hand, mom or dad went out and worked and made money and bought the food and brought it to you and cooked it, whatever. But they did that according to the skills and the gifts that he provided for them. And the actual food itself comes from things that were created by him. We owe him the very air that we breathe. It is all a gift from him. But it does not logically follow that God owes us 
anything because we have not and are not able to put him into our debt. Psalm 50 says uh, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is just a poetic way of saying all of it. (laughs) The earth and the fullness thereof belongs to me, says the Lord. Therefore, if I was hungry, I would not ask you because you have nothing for me. We do not, he does not owe us anything. A.A. Hodge put it this way, the very act of creation brings the creature under obligation to the creator, but it cannot bring the creator into obligation to the creature. And that should be uh, fairly self-evident. So that's what the confession is saying uh, when it says in chapter 7, paragraph 1, reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator. But that does not fulfill God's desire. God did not make us for that type of relationship. It is true that he's not obligated to give us anything. But it is also true that his desire is to bless us. His desire is is that we would glorify him in our service but also that we would enjoy communion and relationship with him, right? That's Westminster Shorter Catechism 1. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is... Both parts. To glorify God in all that we do and to enjoy him as we do so. To enjoy him as we carry out our service. A few weeks ago we mentioned that Uh, God's purpose for mankind was that we would rule over creation on his behalf, in his image, and for his glory. That's true. But he also made us for relationship with himself. We see this uh, in Acts. We see this all over the Bible, but for the sake of time, we'll just look at one passage. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. This is the Apostle Paul in the Areopagus. He says, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we are his offspring. And the idea is God made us, yes, to, 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 to work, but also that we might have relationship with him. Um, another good verse to see this in is in, in the very beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God gives the very first command to man. But before he does that, would somebody please read Genesis 1.28, the full verse. Francis. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Great. So the command is, take dominion, be fruitful, multiply. But that command in and of itself is described as what at the very beginning of the verse? A blessing. God desires to bless us through relationship with him. God wants to bless his people and he wants and he does so not by uh, only making us, but then come calling us into covenant with himself. And I'll end on this. Um, God. In his covenant, what he's doing is he's defining the relationship. Relationships need definitions. Relationships, need, we, we need to understand what our relationship is so that we know what's expected of us and we know what we're able to expect of him. Does that make sense? When you have relationships with people, uh, especially, especially close, intimate ones that are not defined, that is the source of much vexation and stress. Because you're expecting one thing and they're expecting another and nobody's happy. God defines his relationship with us by means of covenant. And we'll be looking at what that covenant is made up of over the next several weeks. But for right now, I'll just tell you the basic things that are needed for a covenant. I've got five of them and we'll end here. Parties, that's people that are in the covenant. It's a relationship between at least two people. Prescriptions, that's, and by the way, these all start with P because I'm trying to be good and consistent. Prescriptions, that's things that we are to do. Prohibitions, things that we are not supposed to do. Punishments, should we fail to do what we're supposed to do or do what we're not supposed to do. And finally, promises of blessing, should we do what we're supposed to do and not do what we're not supposed to do. So every covenant will have those components to it. Parties, prescriptions, prohibitions, punishments, and promises of blessing. And that is what defines our relationship to God. So next week, uh, I will not be here, so we'll take a break from the confession. But the week after that, I will be back, and we'll be looking at chapter 7, paragraph 2, which is the first covenant God made with mankind, the covenant of works with Adam in the garden. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you that you love us and that you care for us, that you have made yourself known to us, that you have, uh, out of your love for us, not only made yourself known generally, but that you've come to us personally and brought us into covenant relationship with you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we consider this most important topic of Scripture, indeed, how the whole of your Bible is organized, that we would do so not as just a means of gaining intellectual knowledge, but that we would do so as a means to the end, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.